You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. Welcome to the show. My name is J Mac, also known as Jeremy, in St. Louis in my COVID-free bunker, joined by... Hey, this is Sam Wade out in Los Angeles. And Sam, before we get going, why don't you shoot off our website? You built us a website, and we have a Facebook, and you sent me the, the text, and I don't have it pulled up. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Uh, we you know we want to make it easy for everybody to go and uh, find out find uh, everything that we're uh, working on and doing. So you can check out twotapedecks.com. That takes you directly to uh, for now to our SoundCloud link where you can find every episode. It's also available on Spotify, iTunes, Google, um, pretty much anywhere where you can find uh, you know podcasts that you love. Uh, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com/twotapedecks. Come and leave us a message. Hang out. Anywhere quality podcasts are found. Okay, we've got a really fun episode right here, and I'm going to just, we got a guest. It's the first time we've had a guest, and this guy did not realize how big of an influence he was on my music. He introduced me to the sitar. He introduced me to Sgt. Pepper, the album we're getting ready to do. So I, I, I didn't want to bury the lead. Um, just a whole world of music that I'd never heard. And Sam, you're more acquainted with this guy than I am, so I'm going to toss to you, and why don't you give your own intro to this special guest we have? Well, I've known him all my life. Really? <laughs> I have. I've known this this dude all my life. Uh, this guy, Tony Wade, is my dad and one of my biggest musical influences ever. So uh, I'm really uh, honored to have him on the show. And uh, it's more than just uh, having a family member, you know, in an easy guest to get. Uh, no, my dad uh, has really shaped the way that I look at, at, at music and life in general. And I know that um, it's been that way for a lot of people. So I think he has a lot to add um, to the conversation of music and recording and songwriting and very specifically with our topic for today. So I'm excited to see to see what what, uh, what happens there. Is that enough? Is that enough of an intro for you, Tony? Do you feel like you can live up to that? <laughs> I don't know. I'll give it a try. But yeah, here I am. Um, yeah, I've known I've known Sam his whole life. Imagine that. I've known you most of yours, Jeremy. Yes, you knew me when I had hair. <laughs> That's right. Oh, the you day the, the days that I had hair. You were the neighborhood kid who rode around with long hair riding a skateboard. You know, here's a here's a little side story. I'm just going to take a, a, a brief rabbit trail. I used to get out and skateboard in the neighborhood where where we lived. And one morning, me and my buddy Corey, who was kind of a, a malcontent, kind of a kind of a poo poo head kind of a guy, we decided we were going to go skateboarding at five thirty in the morning. And so we were out at the church parking lot across from you, where where your house was at, and you came out all bleary eyed with your suitcase and like getting ready to go to work, and you were like. Do you guys know what time it is? <laughs> it was hilarious. Oh, wow. Do you remember I that? I don't remember that at all. No. Oh my God! You looked at me like are, are you? I think he thought we were on drugs. That's my. That's kind of what I thought. Well, Corey might have been. I don't know. I don't know. I just. I can't imagine me doing that. I mean, it's just not the way I usually was. But okay. No, I imagine it this way, Dad. I imagine that you were probably because you used to go to to work really really early in the morning, yeah. and I would imagine like you you probably just had gotten your first coffee, and you were like you you saw them doing that, and then you were like, "It's way too early. It's <laughs> too early for me. Why are they out?" 
That's exactly. Go ahead. I say I probably wasn't mad. I was probably just talking. No, no, you weren't mad. You were basically like, I have to be up. Why in the Sam Hill are you guys up voluntarily? And it was a cold morning. We had shorts on. And you were like, and you're in shorts too. It was just one of those moments that crystallized in my brain. I was like, I guess I guess this is what we were looking for. People to say, why in the world are you out skateboarding in shorts when it's 40 degrees out and it's 530 in the morning? Okay. Yeah. I used to have to get up early and go down. I, I worked downtown and I rode the bus. So I had to get up early and walk down to the bus station to catch the bus to get down to transfer onto the Metrolink and then to get down work downtown in time. It took me like 45 minutes to an hour just to get from our house to downtown that way. Wow. Yeah. That must... so I, I had to get up earlier. Yeah. That must've been what it was. You were, you were uh, riding the bus. Cause yeah, you had a suitcase and you were walking and I assumed you weren't uh, walking up to I... Grandview Schnooks or something. No, it was my briefcase. All right. So Sam, why don't we, why don't we just get into the beetle uh, step, put our foot into the beetle pond real quick here. Um, we're going to do Sgt. Pepper, the album that that Tony introduced me to, which blew my mind. It was at that point almost 30 years old, and it was an incredible album. I'd never heard anything like this before. As a, as a sheltered kid who didn't get a lot of exposure to, to mainstream music, um, except what was on the local easy listening station, KZK, uh, that, that's a St. Louis thing. You'll, you'll, I, think that's still, I think it's still a thing. I did. So I heard when the opening salvo of of the, this album started, it really got my attention. But before we get to that, uh, Sam wanted to talk about the singles that preceded the album, which actually, Tony, you said George Martin, the Beatles producer, felt they should have been on the album. I heard him heard him um, or read an art an interview with him one time, and he said it was really one of his biggest regrets that he didn't include those on the album. But he said back in those days, you didn't put singles on albums because people thought you were cheating them if you did. That's, that's that was the thing at the you know that was the thing at that time period in music is um, the way that they were getting it out. I mean, this the, the putting out record singles uh, was uh, you know not long after they were selling like wax cylinders with music on it and you know sheet music to get songs out there. And so they were like they focused on doing a song, like put a song one on each side, sell those, you sell a bunch of them, and those singles were seen differently than record albums. You know, and so like uh, the Beatles, their recording uh, company, they wouldn't combine those things together. It gave them more product to sell. And and also he said, you know, because they had quit touring in 1966 and hadn't put anything out at all for over a year. So he, you know, people were saying, well, the Beatles are done. They're not, you know, they're not coming back. And so part of it was releasing those to show that the Beatles were really working on something special. Well, the crazy thing was those singles were head and shoulders above anything they'd done to that point. It almost didn't sound like the Beatles. It -hmm. almost sounded like a completely different band. And Sam, this is where I'm going to throw to you. What was the the A-side? Wasn't it a double A-side? I can't remember. No, I think that's right. That's that's probably the best way to view it. Uh, So the first two songs that they put out from this record um, were the double A-side with Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever. And it's interesting. I kind of want to get into these songs just a little bit um, just to kind of uh, contextualize why this, you know, and and uh, dad, you brought it up there just uh, for a minute about why this record was important, why these singles were important. And I'm sure for like the Beatles brand, um, getting them, uh, you know, in front of people. This is also in a world right after John Lennon had gotten in 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 a lot of heat for saying that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. 
you know, there was a lot going on. Summer of Love was about to happen. You know, a lot happening in in the world in 1967. And that was completely taken out of context too. John's well, exactly. Yeah. We could do a whole yeah, show. You're on right. That. It actually was. We could do a whole show on that. We should. <laughs> so so Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. My favorite initially was uh, was Strawberry Fields because it's just so weird, but. Penny Lane is no slouch either. It's it's it stands up. It's it's the quintessential flip side of Lennon and McCartney coin. You've got Lennon being kind of morose and weird and druggy, and then you've got McCartney being super sunshiny, lots of horns, lots of like happy imagery. What was your favorite, Tony? On the album and those two songs of the of, of the singles. Um, oh, of the singles. Yeah, um, of the singles. I think- I think Penny Lane because Penny Lane is just an amazing song. I've, I've watched um, different guys talk about this, even like, you know, music historians, you know, I've actually watched a guy that said, basically the Beatles saved music by putting out Sgt. Pepper and putting out Penny Lane. Penny Lane is an amazing song because it makes this really, it's in the beginning, it's, it's da, 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 da. And then when it goes to the chorus, it changes keys to a really weird key. And then it changes right back again. And if you didn't, weren't paying attention you don't even realize that it changed keys i didn't realize it until you just yeah. told me now that you it's say it now that you writing. say it i can hear it but until you said yeah. it but it does give it a very unique feel sam what mm-hmm. was your favorite of the two well for me um if i had to choose a favorite it's probably going to be strawberry fields forever um but that's because it's more of a psychedelic production and really um a kind of a continuation of what they were doing on tomorrow never knows on revolver. But what I think is really interesting too, I kind of want to bring this up and talk about this for a minute. What I think is really interesting too, is that these songs, like we mentioned before, were initially supposed to be on the record. Sergeant Pepper's only hearts club band. Like this was supposed to be a concept album, right? think about it this way too. Like, you know, for the for, for people out there that know rock history, they know that there was kind of like this semi um, congenial feud between the Beach Boys and the Beatles and the Beatles released Rubber Soul um, and, and the Beach Boys release Pet Sound. So then they do Revolver. And during this time, um, you know, sessions for Smile are happening. In fact, uh, in between um, recording uh, or ending their tour after revolver and then the Beatles quit touring in between that time, they took three months on hiatus and they both went and did different things or, or they, they all went and did different things during that time period. One of the things that Paul McCartney did is he actually spent some time in LA with Brian Wilson, met the beach boys and actually co-produced one of the songs from the smile sessions, which was vegetables. So there was like this camaraderie happening. And I think in a lot of ways, Sergeant Pepper is like, the culmination of all those ideas is to make the best album ever, the best rock album ever. So one of the things that they originally um, had the idea for was to write songs that were inspired by their childhood, which is cool. Cause that's kind of like what we do on the podcast. If you think about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And these two songs were based on actual places in Liverpool that they spent their time. Right. So that's I thought that was pretty cool. They ended up releasing them as singles. So the album actually changed in concepts and and changed this other thing. But this was the beginning of that idea. Well, on a technical note, on a technical note, the thing that drew me to Strawberry Fields was the opening. 
the opening verse or two did not sound like Lennon. And I didn't realize until I like dug a little deeper when I saw it was like a documentary on TV that Lennon actually had slowed his voice down. You can hear it speed up or you can hear there's an, there's an edit between a part one, like part one and part two. But Lennon's voice sounds very slurred and very drugged out. And that was, I always wondered, I was like, doesn't sound like Lennon, but in fact, they turned the speed wheel down, I guess, of the, uh, the modulation down on the recorder and gave it this really, really weird feel. It was pretty amazing. And, uh, just the end, it just builds to this weird climax. And Tony, am I, am I right in saying this, that Lennon was not happy with the final take or the final version of Strawberry Fields? What, what would you possibly have to complain about with that? Well, here's the story I heard is, and I'm, I'm really impressed that you picked up on that change because the story I've heard is that they had a lot of trouble recording this song and they had done different versions of it. And by the time they got done, they liked the first version of one take and the last part of the second take. George was trying to get John to do it again. And John said, no, you, you can put them together. Just, just do your magic. And so that's <laughs> what's happening there is, is, is George Martin is putting those two record two um, different versions together into one. You know, was, you're, you're absolutely right, dad. And I'm glad that you brought that up. Cause I think that's one of the really big technical achievements of this song too. Also one of the reasons it's, it's probably one of my all time favorite Beatles songs is what they actually had to do is the two different versions you're talking about were recorded in different keys. Right. So they had to slow down one and speed up the other. So they would be in about the same key. Mm. And then at just the right time, um, do what's called flying it in uh, from the tape decks, fly it in at just that point. So that they married up together. It's, it's pretty cool. Right. And they're doing that with tape. Yeah. It's not digital. It's yeah, tape. Yeah. Now we take for granted with all the digitizing and like, um, overdubbing and and syncing. There was no auto tune back then. Uh, they were actually cutting pieces of tape and sticking them that's together. Great. As as a person who has tons of tapes down here, I don't even understand how they got it right. I guess the tapes were probably a little bit bigger than the ones I had, but still, that's that's tricky. That is really yeah. tricky to do. It's like making a movie. It's incredible, and they got it done. And you know, it's it's arguably one of the the most Beatles of the Beatles songs that they've ever done. Are right, you guys want to move on to the album proper? Sure, sure. All right, uh, just just to note, the cover was amazing. So many people have copied that cover in different ways, without being nearly as successful. But Mothers of Invention, they did a one that was like it. Who who else did a cover like that? Well, didn't didn't Rolling Stones did? Yeah, Stones did. Uh, it's only rock and roll. That wasn't that. Uh, that was kind of influenced by uh, by that uh, Sergeant Pepper cover. George Harrison. And, and, and just so I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, I was going to say we should describe the cover um, so people know exactly what we're talking about. It's basically the Beatles. They're dressed up in like marching band gears, and around them are all these cardboard cutouts of various celebrities. George Harrison picked a bunch of gurus. I was looking at the cover today. I see Edgar Allan Poe up in the background. I don't know how I knew that was Edgar mm-hmm. Allan Poe, but he's a weird, he's a weird looking dude. I can't think of another album at that time that was anywhere near as detailed as that album cover anyway. It kind of lent itself to what was going to happen on the album. You were looking at like something that was kind of like too much to take in on one view. Back in the day, you would sit with that album cover in your hand while you listened to it. You just try to look at everything on the front of that album and try to figure out who all those people were and what why they were on there and make up stories about it. Just, you know, just go wild with it. 
Can you take us back to the first time that you heard it? Do you yes. remember the first time you ever heard yes. it? Yes, do this. Did I ever heard that? I, I was thinking, I remember the first Beatles song I ever, ever became conscious that I was listening to it. And that was um, She Loves You. When I was about, I was probably about five or six years old and we were at a public swimming pool and they were playing it over the speakers. And I remember hearing, She Loves You, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Sergeant Pepper, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't really into music a whole lot back then. So really it was more like this was just background music in the car when we would drive somewhere. So you would, you would hear, um, I think probably the first song I remember from that is um, um, I Get By With A Little Help From My Friends is probably the first song I remember. Sure. Yeah, that was on the radio. Well, how old were you then the first time that you actually sat down and listened to the album straight through? Probably <laughs> after I was a teenager in the early in the early 70s. So about the same time period that we heard it too, the same age that we heard it for the first time. Probably, maybe. I started getting into music. The first um the first record that I ever bought on my own with my own money on my own taste was um a CCR single oh nice <laughs> and nice and that would have been that would have been like 1970 probably and, yeah and then i got a hold of um i don't know how i got it but you know those 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 compilations they released with um one was the old beatles and one was the newer beatles and they had them on that um apartment building looking over the edge i yeah. had those albums and i listened to listened to the heck out of them so that's a blue one and a red one right 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 blue one is early and red one is later vice versa i can't remember but i remember listening to those albums just over and over and over and that's what really got me into the Beatles. I started, you know, like I heard Sam say on one of the podcasts earlier about checking records out from the library. That's what I did, too. So you check these records out, bring them home and listen to them. Um, and that's, you know, that's how I got into the Beatles. That and um, and when I uh, when I bought Ram, Ram was the first Beatles album, you know, Sergeant Pepper. I didn't I never actually bought it, but I I bought Ram and I started listening. I bought it. I bought it for. Um, uncle albert admiral halsey sure then when okay. i started listening to it it's like oh my gosh that's not even the best song on this album and that's what really We're, those those three records are what really got me into the beatles absolutely and you know what we will probably do um a podcast about that album ram okay. and we'll have you back for that for sure okay so let's let's get into the track list on this j mac what do you think sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band from the opening salvo of those electric guitars come screaming in and the Ringo's drum beat it didn't sound like the Beatles to me and I know I've said this before about about some of the other songs it sounded like like the time they took off they almost came out of like uh an egg a slightly different or very changed animal than than we had previously heard Paul was screaming there's that kind of middle part where there's all those those uh layered vocals and then the horn section comes in it's pretty aggressive for the by the Beatles standards. I guess you'd have to go back to uh, I saw her standing there, that type of vibe to get the kind of energy that Paul is really kicking in, and it, it captivated me from the very beginning. And they were talking about this band, Sergeant Heart, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and I know Lennon kind of dismissed it as like a flimsy idea, but it really captured my imagination and made the rest of the I'm, I'm mentally I made the rest of the album fit the concept of a band like a band introducing a band what are your thoughts on track one guys well i think um what was what was so cool for me when i was listening to it was ha having the crowd noise that's come in before the the music started. yes yes and, and you know i think part of the whole thing was supposed that they were supposed to be really 
making a break with who they were in the past. So, you know, back in the past, they wore all these nice suits with ties. Now they're dressed up in these really weird suits on the front of the cover. And, you know, you are, they're, they're coming in like it's, like it's an old Beatles song. And that kind of just sets up the whole show. And it's like, now we're going to introduce you to Billy Shears and everything has changed from that point on. Back then, you know, too, is that, you know, back then when, when bands recorded, they recorded what they could actually reproduce when they played on stage. And the Beatles were, were wanting to start doing a lot of arranging and, and start doing versions of songs that they, they could never recreate that on stage with just four guys. Yes, I agree. I, I heard that part of the, the concept for sending the for having this uh, uh, alternate band that they performed as actually began uh, when they heard about uh, Elvis had like, I don't know, like 10 pink Cadillacs. I forget what the actual number was. But he had all these pink Cadillacs and he decided to start sending them out on tour. So they went out on the, because people just wanted to see him and they would pay to see him. So it was the concept of sending something else out on tour without them having to go for a band mm-hmm. that literally just quit touring because it was getting insane. The idea of having an album with a fictional band that went out on tour for them, I think, is what really motivated this, this concept. Funny. Did you know that um, I'm going I'm to break away from Sergeant Pepper for a second here, but did you know that? St. Louis was one of the dates on their last tour when they ended up in San Francisco. I and did. the rainstorm in St. Louis playing the rain was what partly contributed to Paul finally giving up and saying, yeah, you guys are right. We should quit touring. Wow. Saint, <laughs> that sounds about right. St. Louis in the news again. <laughs> they, had, they had one before in Cincinnati and that went really bad. And yeah. then they did the one in St. Louis and just pouring rain the whole time. <laughs> and uh, you know, the other three had wanted to stop touring long before Paul did. Paul's the one who wanted to keep it on going. But then after that tour, he said, yeah, it's time to stop. I think on the Beatles anthology, they said after the Candlestick Park show, they ended up, uh, and J-Mac, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I, they ended up like being thrown in the back of a truck yeah. that was like, yeah. had nothing to sit in. They were just being thrown around back there and they're like this is nuts. Like they were do- like stray dogs. I can, I can just picture in my mind, Tony, Paul and all the Beatles drenched coming in off, off, I guess they, did they play Bush stadium? I'm assuming they played. Yeah. And yeah, I can just, did. I can just see Paul hanging with all his wet hair hanging in his face. And I wish I could do a Paul <laughs> accent, but it's just saying some very English version of screw all this. I can just, you know, yeah. just soaking wet, like a stray dog. Okay. We're going <laughs> to move. Is, we're going to move quickly this, into track two here. If you guys are done with that one, let's do it. Billy Shears with a little help from my friends. And, I learned to sing harmony on this song. This is my favorite Ringo song. And the harmonies are so good and so clear, CD, vinyl, whatever you're listening to, that this was the song that I was like, I finally, singing harmony clicked in my head. I don't know what about this track did, but but George and Paul, and I, I believe, I guess all three of them were doing harmonies on on this. Maybe you guys have technical notes on that, but it was it's, it's my favorite Ringo song. It's so it's so more it's like upbeat and self pitying at the same time, like the opening line. But then it's it's really sweet lyrics. I love it. I listened to it twice today. Favorite Ringo song. I seem well, to I remember that um, that there was so so when you listen to the stereo version, there the they pan in. Instruments, um, some of them all the way in one earphone, yeah. and some of the instruments are all the way in another one. So I kind of remember, like, didn't you take that and cancel out one of the sides <laughs> and record your own vocals on it? One point, I did. I did like a like That's a awesome. schmuck. I, I also did Sergeant Pepper and When I'm 64, which is later on. That's the highest ringle we ever sang. That last note with my friends. Well, 
it's just a great song period i mean whether i mean whether it's a ringo song or just a beatles song it's one of their best i think it just it's just everything's so perfect on it with with them answering back and forth yes. could you meet anybody yes and you yeah. go back i just need someone to love um it was just just amazing and a lot of you know you know joe cocker recorded it with a very right. popular version but um i was going to say one thing one thing about the beatles at, at that time after they quit touring i don't know what I mean, like I said, I was only nine years old, so I didn't really understand everything that was going on. But I remember my mom getting really upset with them about all the drug stuff. Mm. And and that song, when they, when they sang Get High with a little bit of help from mm-hmm. my friends, everybody thought that was about, or at least all the older people thought that was about drugs. Yeah, they were scared and, of that. And so that made the, the song kind of like counterculture for them. And I remember riding in the car one time, and I guess that song was on, and my mom looked at me really seriously and really mad and says if you ever do drugs I will. <laughs> and i said okay <laughs> that's awesome wow and that's a really that really kind of is a slice of life of like you know kind of how people saw the saw bands you know beatles yeah. especially and and some of the music you know there was still you know some of that like aggressive oh. anti-rock and roll stuff happened at that time right just anti-drug stuff i remember we, we were watching a johnny cash concert and she says, look at him. Look at his face. That's what drugs do. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. You, 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 you brought it up earlier, too, because I, I want to show this counterpoint real quick. You, you mentioned the song is just a great song, and you brought up Joe Cocker's version. And I think that that's the best example of why this is such an amazing song. Because he took that, and it's very rare that another artist, at least in my opinion, that another artist can outdo the Beatles on, on one of their songs. And I think that he made that song better with his version of it. I, didn't they perform that at Woodstock, too? I, I don't remember. I did. Um, but it, we have to do, it, it verify that. But it, it's just the fact that it's like um, at, at, at Woodstock, you have all these people just in peace and harmony. Yeah, a lot of them are doing drugs, but they're not fighting with each other. Like, that just scares right. people. Right. So let me, let me jump in for a second. Is like one thing about the Beatles, you were right, Sam, about covers. I mean, yesterday, I think, is one of the most covered songs in the history of, of songs. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of like covers like that became standards. Back then, it was like all the George Gershwin songs and Cole Porter and those kind of songs, you know, that became what they call the standards. And that's what the jazz musicians would play. They would play over the, the standards or the Broadway musical standards. Gotcha. And Beatles that I that I recall was the first was they were basically the next George Gershwin on the on the music scene. And, you know, that's how much influence they had. And personally, I think, you know, the way I divide up music in my head, in Western music anyway, is that there was Beethoven. And then not until the Beatles did anyone impact the musical world the way that Beethoven did. Wow. I know I know people will think that's over the top, but if you if you look at it. You know, at the at the big broad picture of the time, I mean, there's I would say there, there's Beethoven, but then I also you can't overlook guys like Scott Joplin and sure and, um, Robert Johnson and those guys. They had a big influence as well. But on the whole, especially biggest, on British rock, right? Especially on the whole culture as a whole. I mean, again, back to I wish I could find this YouTube video. I'll send it to you guys if I can find it, where this guy does this analysis. He basically said that the Beatles also saved classical music. Because I don't know if you know how much, how much you knew about classical music during that time, but it was all this this twelve tone atonal stuff that you would you would pick twelve random notes, and then there was all these kind of rules that you had to play all those notes in order, whether they were separately oh, or as chords, and and it was really it's really atonal, and it's like people 
kind of realized after the Beatles came out and started playing this stuff, so, well, we can do stuff like that too. We don't have to, to sit with this, all this stuff with all these rules made up by some guy who, you know, Aaron Chainberg, who, who's, who's he anyway? It's like, so, you know, not only did it save popular music, it saved classical music from, you know, navel gazing on itself. That's pretty cool. Uh, we should talk a little bit more about that on uh, She's Leaving Home, maybe. Yeah. All right, we're moving on to track three now, which is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, speaking of drugs. Uh, back to the Johnny Cash thing. Uh, that is what drugs do to you. <laughs> Your mom was right. <laughs> uh, but Lucy, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, it I think it gets overlooked because it's got such a druggy kind of like vibe to it. But the, but the opening of that, and I actually heard George Martin say, I think he referenced Beethoven or Bach. He was like the opening uh, Mellotron or whatever instrument that is that's being played. The, the notes are so odd and well crafted mm -hmm. it's hard to believe a pop musician came up with that mm -hmm. it's a great song it's got the tambour in it at one point it's very it's it's got a little hints of like eastern flavor to it but it's 100 percent lennon um i love it one of my all-time favorite songs of the beatles ever did never get tired of it um sam i know you love this one i do love this song um and it was one of those songs that really arrested me the first time I heard it. Um, mostly because of what you just described. Like it ends, uh, it starts off in like this dreamy type state. And then like on the chorus, like hits like this crazy long chorus or, or this crazy hard hitting chorus. Um, and the, the lyrics are just weird, right? I will point out that there's one other artist that has done this song that I think in its own way uh actually is superior and that is go and look up william shatner doing lucy in the sky with <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it is incredible it is incredible there's nothing else like it in the world you got to check it out i will so if you haven't I will. seen that if anybody's listening you haven't seen that do seen it. My favor go look it up it's amazing dad uh, did you have anything you want to say about lucy yeah i, I like to say a couple things about it. is it you know, it is, it's amazing to me how the, the counter tonal, like you've got that, the, the intro with the Mellotron. Yeah. But then John, that keeps playing in the background and John comes in with a completely different melody. Singing, yes. Singing over that. That's just, that's just amazing. That's, you know, that's a classical vibe too. But for me, I mean, what really sticks out to me, you know, so, I mean, so much of the song is, is great and awesome. The, you know, the way that John Lennon sings like he's never sang before. Yes. That's one of the things I admire about the Beatles, that they would change the way that they sang to fit the song so it's not all like you know in this he was like real dreamy and kind mm -hmm. of nasally when he's singing it and then compare that to another song where he's not it's completely different so i really admire the beatles and i really learned a lot that you can you can do a lot just by singing differently you don't have to sing the same way all the time but one thing that always stuck out to me song this song is the bass line the bass line on this song oh, is yes. one of mccarthy's yeah. best okay i want I wanted to get yeah. into this. Sam's grinning because he knows where I'm going to go with this. McCartney invented lead bass on this album. The bass lines that he did mm -hmm. on this album from start to finish are, are groundbreaking, trend-setting bass lines. And I don't know if it was a Hoffner or a Rick. Maybe Sam can answer that. But they, By they, this time, it should have been a, a Rick. And I remember reading that Jeff Emmerich book, and he literally wore he would have blisters on his fingers and, and like be bleeding from his fingers because he would stay like hours after the band left. But it's a lead bass, and you're right. This is the song that it really comes front and center. So you've got Lennon's sort of little classical thing. You've got Lennon's 
counter melody on top of it. Then you have Paul's bass line doing kind of a, like a totally, not totally different thing, but you've got a lot going on and there's not a lot of instrumentation, but what instrumentation there is, is do is doing very complicated interweaving. And it, that's what I think makes the song so great in my opinion. So that's why I consider McCartney one of the best place, bass players ever. Cause he would sit and work out those, those bass lines, you know, really he'd work really hard on them. And that's one of the things I remember George Martin saying about the Beatles. It says they were really hardworking. They worked hard. They didn't, you know, this stuff didn't come just out of the top of their heads. They worked at it, but that baseline, it moves so much on, and the, and the harmonics rhythm of the song is very slow. The, the chord changes are long and drawn out and slow, but the bass moves so much, but it still fits and it works. It's kind of like the baseline in something. Same, yes. you know, that baseline is just going all over the place, but it doesn't detract from the song. It doesn't get in the way. Yes, I agree. I think Paul McCartney's a very underrated bass player. Anything you guys want to add to this song before we move on to getting better? Maybe this will be a four episode, Jeremy. It can't get <laughs> any worse. Okay, getting better. This is I love this song because I, I think Paul wrote it, but Lennon's got this snarky background vocal during the whole thing. Once again, great bass, great guitar riff. And that was the first thing I noticed when I first listened to this album years ago was how Lennon was kind of undercutting everything McCartney was saying. It was, it was actually it's hilarious. So dark humor. It was very dark. Right? Very dark. Well, that, you know, this song McCartney. taught me about this song taught me uh, about uh, about irony. Yes, you know that that whole counterpoint. You know I, what I heard Paul Paul did an interview on this, and you know they he he cites this as a perfect example of a Lennon McCartney song, how they would work with each other. So Paul has has all this. And you, had to admit it's getting better. And then Lennon made that up. It can't get no worse. He threw that <laughs> in himself and made it up. I love it. Paul loved it. Paul loved it. He kept it in the song. He said that's it's how brilliant. that's how we work, that's how we work together. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I love about this song, the piano. The piano on this song is genius. If you never stop to listen to what they're doing with just these single notes carrying it through, it adds so much like if you took the piano out it wouldn't have the same uh, kind of uh, uh immediacy that it does <laughs> it's awesome well and it's amazing what they did with so little compared to what we do now um it was a great well, you know when they recorded this album you know, on that point that when, when, when they made it they could uh up until this point record like you would have four separate tracks that you could record you could do like a drum part and a bass part and maybe like two vocals or maybe some guitars. And they could make more tracks by like combining them down. At this point, they had figured out a way to use two four tracks together. So it wasn't one eight track machine that had two tape machines. And I'm going to, I'm not going to go too technical here because I know we'll lose uh, <laughs> half everybody. But just imagine if you had four things that you could record on and another four things that you could record on that were independent of each other. And you found a way to sync those up. That's how they made this album. It's, it's just, it was a feat of engineering too. It, it changed the way that people made music. It sounds like two tape decks and a mixing board to me. <laughs> yeah. Something kind of like that, right? All right. So we're moving on to yep. the track fixing a hole. Now I, this, this song is, it's pretty straightforward, but I remember listening to the lyrics as a teenager going, what in the heck is he talking about? It's a classic song by McCartney taking nothing and making a song out of it. Fixing a hole where the rain gets in stops my mind from wondering. Okay, Paul, I'm sending you a $50 check for singing that. 
Just just a very <laughs> clever song. Once again, Paul shines on bass on this track. Incredible, incredible bass line. I love it. As I played bass in a band for a little bit. It was a really bad band. Uh, but I <laughs> but I played the bass pretty good. And playing the bass in the studio and in a band, you start to listen to the bass like an instrument like I would say before I started playing bass I didn't really hear the bass like when we were over at your house years ago I didn't hear the bass or I didn't I heard it but I didn't understand was what I was hearing now I get it mm-hmm. Paul's I yeah. mean it's almost like a lead guitar through the whole song it's amazing it is you know it's what Sting Sting said that the bass is what controls the band he says he says I'm the guy who decides whether it's an E with a G sharp in the bass or an E with an E in the bass you know so it's you know but but on this song, if you don't mind me jumping in, I was talking, talking to Sam the other day. I, I I listen to this and I'm transfixed by Ringo's hi-hat. To listen to the way he plays the hi-hat on this song is amazing. You know, he's got that sloshy. He doesn't ever hold his hi-hat really tight. It's always kind of uh-huh. sloshy. And the way that he uses that sloshiness on this song is just incredible. I think this is just a great song for that Ringo took care of. What about Ringo's drumming? Um, is is both brilliant and fitting on this song, and just in general, real quick, because I know there's a lot of people that like to to hate on Ringo and say he's not a great drummer. I personally think that he serves the song better than most people could. Yeah, I I think Ringo got a bad rap back during those days, but I think by and large now most I think most drummers anyway recognize that Ringo has had a huge huge influence on everything that's happened and he was so good there's this there's this great if you ever want to look it up there's a youtube that dave grohl did about ringo and why ringo was so great and it's really good post that on our page he said he didn't try to be flashy he wanted he wanted to make the song work so he was always about the song and you know in most cases that was true of all of the beatles they were all about making that song the best song that it could be and not standing out and being the 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 solo artist or the the, the standout person it was really always about the song, not about the people. And that's that's another thing that made the Beatles great. Well, and you know, you know, it kind of Ringo. I know this came. I guess it was kind of around the same time. Ringo was competing with Keith Moon, and then later John Bonham. But Jeremy, he was so influential in the things he did, like like the way he played drums on "Ticket to Ride." I mean, oh my God, I love that song. Amazing, and the way that he played drums on um, on something, yeah, come together, and how he played the drums on. Um, on oh, Revolution, sorry. yeah, it's just amazing the way he played the drums on that. People don't give him props for that because because it's so good and it fits the song so well, it doesn't mm-hmm. stick out like what yes. those other guys do. They do stuff that sticks out. Rigo doesn't want to stick out. Yes, and he's so, he's so cool about it too because I think he's just like so confident. He knows like I'm just you know I'm just doing my thing and I know what's good and I know what I'm doing is right. So like he just you know he ends up being like one of the coolest dudes around. Just, smiling it off and letting people figure it out over time, you know? <laughs> All right. We're moving on to what I call kind of a, kind of a, a breather song. She's leaving home. You've been assaulted by bass and psychedelia. Then you move into she's leaving home, which is, it's a, it gives you a chance to breathe. An album needs breathers. It's a good song. Great arrangement. Classic Paul throws back a little bit to Eleanor Rigby. She's leaving home. Well, whoever had the idea to use the harp was genius. Yes. Because that harp is so amazing for this song. But anyway, that that song, you know, no drums. It's just all strings and um, harp. And, it, you know, it's even different than like Yesterday or Eleanor Rigby because it's just, 
it's just you know, it's just really amazing. And then how how long the notes hang out, and then when John Lennon comes in and sings with him um, with the bye byes and everything, it's just beautiful. No, Lennon's addition to that song, uh, you can't underestimate it. It, they, it really gives a really touching, unusual for Lennon at that time to, to put some emotion in his singing in that kind of plaintive way. And it really does. It's really good. Like I said, I mean, I feel like people don't really get this now because albums aren't as much of a thing, but pay, album pacing is so important. And this was the perfect place for this song because it leads right into track seven, which is a cacophony of uh, Lennon genius being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Jeremy, you're really right about that on albums. You know, a lot of people don't remember, but back in the day when all you had was an album, you would you would set it up and you'd start at the beginning. And most of the time you just played all the way through because it was too hard to go back and forth. And yeah, different songs. So you just listen to that whole side at once altogether so yeah pacing was was very important well and it's great and what and what song you know what what song you picked to start out the first side and what song you picked out to end the first side and the song that starts the second side and the song that ends the second side that, that was all given a lot of thought oh it was it was very important and i would say that when we i know it we're, we're not the beatles but when when me and sam did tomorrow never knows the track arrangement although there's no vinyl or anything it was important to us to kind of not we took some time in thinking about how do we want the songs to roll out? And we wanted to pick the most climactic one for the end. We wanted to pick uh, one that introed the, uh, the, the concepts that we were putting out for the first one. But I don't think people really give thought anymore to really track placement, but this is a classic example of how track placement helps because she uh, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite is a great side ender. It's a, it's very circusy. Was based on um, mm-hmm. a poster Lennon had found at an antique store. It's- I love that poster, by the way. I'm looking for someone took it and like recreated the whole like uh, letterpress and reprinted it. It was a poster that uh, John Lennon found when he was out shopping. I forget where, probably in London somewhere. It was just like Victorian era poster describing a, a circus and literally if you look at it go and look it up if you look at it the lyrics for the song are almost all present almost exactly like yeah. it was you know yeah. it was almost kind of an exercise in laziness for him like oh yeah <laughs> song. but it ended up being like this great thing because they they brought in all these weird sounds and it it ended up being like this really major production um i even read uh or I heard, saw an interview where George Martin was talking about, they had like uh, this recording of a calliope, which is one of those like steam powered organs that yes. they have on like river boats. If you've ever seen that. And uh, they took like this recording of the calliope and they just spliced it all up. They took all the pieces of tape and threw it up in the air and then picked them up and then like taped them back together. And however it sounded, that's how they recorded it on the record. <laughs> Um, so they, there was this crazy ideas. They would try almost anything to get a different sound. And this song is a perfect example of that. Brilliant. Well, how many, how many rock songs, how many rock songs do you know that has a bass harmonica? I didn't even know there was such a thing. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's, there's bass harmonicas on this song. Holy cow. Really cool. So now we're going to move on to side B of Sergeant Pepper. And this starts off with one of my all-time favorite Beatle tracks, but I don't feel like that's going to be a universal consensus here. I'm talking about Within You, Without You, George Harrison's masterpiece to start off side two of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. 
first off the gate, first time I'd anything, ever heard anything like this. It was really, really something. But I will say this, it doesn't, it's not a Beatles song. It's a George Harrison song. It's not a Beatles song. Tony, you want to weigh on and on, in on this? Because I know you've got a lot to say about this particular track. Well, this song, yeah. Um, this song is definitely, I would say, not a Beatles song. So I don't even know if any of the Beatles even played on it, except maybe Ringo. Do you know? No, I, I looked it up. George played the sitar, and basically uh, George Martin did all the arranging. But no, there were, there were no Beatles playing on this, except George okay. on, on the sitar part in the middle. Yeah, they right. brought so, in, um, uh, uh, I think it was two or three uh, uh, Indian musicians to play on the track. And then you're right, I think George plays sitar on it. And then they added the strings at a later session, pretty sure. In defense of this track, it's the first time I'd ever heard anything like this. It, it blew my mind, but it didn't blow my mind because the Beatles did it. It blew my mind for the Indian classical side of it. Right. I think the raga beat in this is, and I guess that's, is that the right term, Jeremy Raga? The beat is amazing. I love it. The way that yeah. the, you know the drums are working that through, and and to be honest, the first time I heard this song, I would, I didn't really like it a lot. In fact, when I played the record, I would sometimes when I turned the record over to side two, I would skip that song and start with "Lovely Rita." For shame! I think I think there's a lot of people that have listened to this album that have done that exact thing. I think that's completely within reason. Like I did that for a long time with this album this was the one for me is actually my favorite song on this whole record and it might be my favorite Beatles song out of all the songs like a lasting standpoint it's 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 just it's one of those ones that I didn't warm up to until later though like it's a really deep song yeah it's a you know it's it's I've really come to appreciate it I wouldn't say it's my favorite but I've certainly come to a appreciate it the, the lyrics and I guess what really probably threw me off the very first time I heard it was not so much the the sitar and the Indian instruments. It was the the melody that George sings in it. Just it just was so different than anything anybody else had ever heard at that time. And still, you don't hear music like this, and you know, popular music anyway. I'm sure um, it's still pretty pretty um, avant garde for popular music. I will say this: the I mean, rock. Must be listening to tomorrow never knows. <laughs> Sorry, J Mac. Go ahead. That's fine. Yeah, good plug there. Good plug there, Sam. I will say this. The raga refers to the melody structure, not the rhythm structure. I am com okay. completely in over my head with Indian rhythm structures. I think it's played in the beat teen tile, which is a 16-beat cycle, but then I think it also switches to, like, they've got some strange beat cycles. I, I mean, I would be doing injustice to try to explain it to you, but the raga refers to the scales that are played and the rules of the notes that okay. they're playing. But you're right, the, the, okay. the tabla beat is very hypnotic, and I believe that's the first time I'd ever heard a tabla. I didn't even know what it was. I wasn't even sure what the sitar was in the mix because it's so dense with Indian instruments and what, what George Martin put over the top of it. Sam, do you want to speak to George Martin's ar ar arranging over the top of that song? Because that really sells it. Because on the anthology, there's the version without his great um, symphony overdubs, and it really does... It showcases the Indian music, but it really doesn't have that extra flair when George Martin got a hold of it. You want to speak to the arranging of the strings? Absolutely. I think that this is this song um, for all you Beatles fans out there. I, in my opinion, it's it might be George Martin's greatest achievement in a string arrangement for a Beatles track. And I've heard him. There's videos out on YouTube. Um, there was a documentary in the in the 80s that was for the 25th anniversary of the of the record where he talks about some of the stuff 
it was like this dance between Eastern and Western. And I just think the way that they, that the violins dart in and out, we've talked about this on another uh, episode um, about how it's like this contrast of like Eastern scales with like these Western style strings. And to me, when I step back, it's just like this dance between the sounds. Um, And I just think it's, I think it's brilliant. Uh, One of the things, you know, before we move on from the song that I want to bring up too, um, is there's a really great version of this song on the Beatles Love album, the the remix record that they did for the Cirque du Soleil show, where they actually mashed up um, the track from Tomorrow Never Knows, but the song is Within You Without You. And it is brilliant. So if you if you've never listened to that version, you should go on you know whatever streaming service you use, um, or if you have the vinyl, go and and listen to it. it. It's it's just really amazing. On those strings, did um those strings? I I keep hearing these like these slides on the strings to match the sitar. He yes. did that, right? Yes, he did that, which was really un you know very weird. Um, That's probably- the only other composer that I can think of right off the uh, right right off the hand that did that with string arrangements would have been Serge Gainsbourg, who was a French uh, a French dude uh, in the '60s and '70s. It's actually Charlotte Gainsbourg's father, um, the uh, actress, uh, and Jane Birkin was their daughter, or was was Charlotte Gainsbourg. But this guy, he would do like those weird slides and sounds, and that's not something that you would normally hear, though, especially. <laughs> in well, like not those 67 right right not those kind of slides i mean they'd slide up maybe a note but they wouldn't slide like several notes up like they do on that a little bit of trivia on the indian sliding of notes i believe the sitar can bend five notes up now my wow. finger my fingers can only pull about three maybe four because the tension on that neck is incredible i don't know how that how that sitar made of very light wood and a, and a pumpkin or like a gourd on the end is able to sustain the piano, the tension of those piano wire strings. But I believe I should have checked this, but I'm pretty sure it can bend up to five notes up. And the, the cool thing about violins and cellos and a lot of these Western classical instruments is they have no frets. So it would be pretty easy to slide down the mm-hmm. note. And I'm really surprised that more classical musicians don't at least put dabs of that in the music because it is, it is 100% stands out on that on within you without you because that's the only time i'd ever heard classical music slide between the notes yeah some of the later some of the later composers do that but they don't slide like that many notes so they'll slide up you know slide up to one note or something like that i mean you might Um, hear it like in a film score you know mm -hmm. for like a special effect or something but yeah yeah well, and that's where the precision of Indian music comes in. Um, besides the incredibly complicated melody patterns that they have, bending a note, I mean, I guess on a guitar, if you're really muscling it, you can get down two notes. But to be able to, to, to precisely pull down three notes and stop right at the point where the note becomes pitch perfect, really difficult. And I would say that is the most fun thing that I do in, in sitar. My hands aren't really that fast, but the slow pulls are really fun to do. And to, to, to feel you to feel yourself pull from one note, three notes up, and hit it pitch perfect and have the sympathetic strings vibrate underneath, it's magic. It's magic. I, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. And Tony, this is, this is a lot. You were the guy that introduced me to this, so I, I'm going to keep saying yeah. this. But <laughs> okay. it would, you blew my mind, brother. All right. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate the sitar. It's just, it's not something that I really 
have listened a lot to. It's, you know, I appreciate how difficult it is to play correctly. Um, I know that people study their whole lives to, to play it correctly. Um, but I don't know, it just, it's a, it's nice, but it's not something I'd want to listen to all day long. That's for sure. But that's not to take anything away from the sitar. No, no, you're right. Indian classical music is very dense and I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I can only take like, I don't think you're supposed to listen to Braga's all day long. Um, I think it's, Mm -hmm. it's more like you take the 20 minute, 30 minute performance and then move on to something else. I, I, I very rarely listen to more than one rag at a time. It's, it's so much to digest, just like Sergeant Pepper in sort of a microcosm. You got to take time to listen and hear what's going on. One of my uh, doctors told me, she's an Indian lady, and she kind of said, you have an old soul. I don't know if she was trying to say that I was maybe from some other, I, I don't know. If I was, She was like, yeah. why do you connect so deeply with Indian music? I don't know. It's it's something, I can't explain it. but It it's touches really, you. It does. It touches you. It does. And you got anything left to add on this song before we move on to when I'm 64? Well, I think I might. Um, oh, you, you shocked me. When I'm 64 is next time. Huh? Okay. Yeah. I got mixed up then. Okay. Um, I wouldn't. Anyway, um, I think I might start listening to some more sitar music, maybe then just every once in a while, see if I can figure some stuff out about it. Because it's, it's definitely, it's definitely intellectually worth listening to. Let's put it that way. Well, I'll send you some stuff. I'll send you some stuff, Tony. Okay. Maybe we should share, uh, J-Mac, we should share um, for our listeners a a track on on our Facebook page. People might want to check out if they they hang back to that. Yes, yes. Uh, I did want to add, I did want to add one thing, thing unrelated since Sam brought up, up the love track. I just want, going back to, for the benefit of Mr. Kite, I absolutely think it's perfect the way that George Martin's son, I forgot his, his name, how he, on the Love album, they go straight from the end of The Benefit of Mr. Kite, and on the very next note, they go right into the the long, drawn-out um, guitar part on um, I Need You from Abbey Road album. That just fits so perfectly. Or I Want from, You. Uh, I, uh, I, I Want, want you, you to be so heavy, yeah. Right. That, dun, You're right. Brilliant. <laughs> it just, I keep, I keep, every time I listen to that, benefit of mr kite song i'm always surprised when that doesn't come in at the end right because <laughs> it just it goes there it fits now oh, is man. it is it giles martin is it giles martin sam yeah there it is okay giles or giles i'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it but yeah so anyway that little bit of trivia there yeah if you uh if you, if you ever get a chance you know hopefully it uh it reopened but if you ever get a chance to go to las vegas and see the show it's amazing, like the way that the visuals working with the music. Well, we'll have to do a separate, uh, you know, episode and dive into that at some point. But yeah. So when I'm 64, I believe this is what uh, what Lennon would have called one of Paul's old lady songs. I love it, and I think I think Lennon was a little bit harsh with that. But let's be honest, it's so damn catchy. You almost resent that when Paul comes in and he's like, when I get old, uh, losing my, and then, then it's in your head for the rest of the day. And then John's like, God, I can't, now I gotta, I can't get that out of my head. Now, how am I going to write a song? So I love this song. I don't, I think we're all in agreement. This is a pretty, it's not a groundbreaking track, but it's really fun to listen to it. It holds up. It could be played in the twenties, thirties, and it's 20, it's 2020. It still sounds good. It really shows how much his father really influenced him yes. in his musical taste. And I know his he used to listen to his dad's records and his records, dad's records, I guess, were like from music from the 30s, 40s and things like that. And this song, you know, is just straight out of that. I mean, this could this could go in a Broadway musical or something. Yes. Just a, just a 
perfect song for that. Plus, and, the best part is the clarinets. I, I am still, to this day, astounded why the clarinet fell out of popular music. Um, and the saxophone kind of just took everything over. The clarinet is one of the most beautiful, expressive instruments that there is. And I would love to see that make a comeback. I think that's awesome. That That's great that you jumped on that because that's that was going to be my comment. And the reason that that's my comment is because this is the song for this. This song was was really influential for me as a as an eventual you know producer and songwriter was you pointing out the clarinets to me on the song. And it was where I learned that uh, uh, that the clarinet is definitely one of the instruments that has the tonal quality that's closest to the human voice. So I think that's what makes this really unique too, because the arrangement, it's a really tight arrangement for these clarinets that just perfectly fit the song. And it definitely has that feel of like something that would have been played, you know, in the 19, in like, in like the roaring twenties or, you know. Right. But, but even I mean, beautiful. If you want, if you want to hear some really great clarinet, you know, listen to one of Mozart's clarinet um, concertos or the very, listen to Rhapsody in Blue, that very, first note that's long and drawn out that's on a clarinet or listen yeah. to Artie Shaw when they begin the begin that is really great references 100% agree with you on that can I make can I make so, a point here I I may be on to something here but did Kenny G play the clarinet and if so that may be why it fell out of favor <laughs> no Kenny G played. No, I think, <laughs> that's soprano sax All right, I, right. Yeah, I, I didn't know sex. There's such a thing as too much of a good thing. And I think maybe Kenny G found that spot of too much of a good thing. Yeah. He yeah. has the tightest curls for the longest hair in the world, though. Gotta give props <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. No, that dude's a pro. Has his, has his place, right? I'll be 64 <laughs> in a couple of years, and it doesn't seem that old to me now like it did back then. <laughs> right. Weird, right? I know. He's going to be pushing 84 pretty soon. It's true. You know, I think this might have been one of the first Beatles songs that I ever learned, because um, I actually learned how to play it on the piano, uh, you know, when I was like 14. This is one of the first things, oh. you know, that I didn't write. This is one of the first songs. Okay, I'm going to hold up something to the screen you hear. You probably can't see it, but it's when I'm 64 on the coping, I isolated, <laughs> I, I isolated the left-hand track, and... Uh, and with no vocals, you could faintly hear Paul, and I do uh, just a bad vocal performance. I've not listened to that since I have, I've done it. So that shows you how much I like that song. You probably got this tape right there, yeah. don't you, Sam? Oh, I no, I thought this was uh, that one, but this is uh, this is my copy of. Um, wait, what is it? This is Chainsaws and Whoopee Cushions. Oh no, put that away. No, we don't need to see that. <laughs> Um, no, this has when I'm 64. Yeah, too. yeah, you were right. I messed up. It wasn't the coping. It was chainsaws oh. and whoopee cushions. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. And what a juxtaposition. <laughs> wow. It's my life, Tony. I'm, I'm, that's, that's, I live between two extremes. Uh, <laughs> love it. You got, you got anything you want to add before we move on to the next track? Let's, no, let's... let's it was... Uh, it was going. a song that old, it was honestly it was a song the old ladies liked though to be, to be honest. My mom liked All it. Smart. My mom leaving was anybody behind. My mom who didn't really care for the Beatles being played in the house. She's like, well, that, that's a, that's okay. You can play that song, right? Or Honey Pie. 
Yeah, there I you remember go. Remember in the eighties uh, when I'm 64 was used in some Coca-Cola commercial, was which was really controversial. And I think that's because of the whole Michael Jackson yep. buying the publishing thing. So yeah. Yep. All right, so let's move on to track number. It's lovely read. I can't read right now. It's too dark down here in my bunker. Love track Rita Meter Maid. Track number oh, ten. Love, lovely Rita Meter Maid. Now, Tony, you, you're song. you're a huge fan of this song, so I'm going to let you take the lead. I gotta I gotta be honest with you. It wasn't like I disliked it, but since you said it was such a big deal to you, I went back and listened to it. You're onto something, but it it kind of slipped under my radar. I was kind of in a daze for like four songs after uh, Within You Without You, so maybe that was the problem. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I just I love the intro to this song. It's really kind of the most. And I don't know if anybody will agree with me on this, but it really just seems like one of the most psychedelic intros that that there is. And then it goes into this bouncy little pop song. I tell you what, this song is the one that really made me notice the bass. Guitar. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because the, the way the bass guitar works on this song is it just makes the whole song. I just love the way the bass really drives this song and makes it, you know, what it is from from part to part. And then, of course, you can't. The, the ending is pretty psychedelic too, because you know I don't have no I have no idea what that was all about. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. With yeah, I mean they were probably you know high in the studio. I mean this is the album too. I think maybe around these sessions, I don't know for sure. We have to verify this, but during one of these sessions, when like the famous story that's in the books about John Lennon dropping acid and then totally freaking out in the middle of the studio and going up on the roof and they had to follow him up there. I don't think he was going to do anything to himself, but he had to go get in some air. So like <laughs> they were experimenting with a lot of stuff on this record. That's part of why it sounds so wild. Right. But the, but the intro and the outro are just, they, they just don't match the song at all. I just wonder what was the inspiration behind that? Because that's amazing. Well, doesn't the rhythm it change? Doesn't take, it doesn't take away from the song at all. It, it all fits together. No, it's but the, the so rhythm weird. changes very much at the end. It goes to, I don't even, it's like some kind oh, yeah. of offbeat. And it does. It turns into this could have went on the end of a lot of songs. And it's funny how Paul was so good. And I'm assuming John had something to do with this, too. Just how he could take a song that was normal and turn it on its head and make it strange or vice versa. Take a song that's strange and kind of make it sound normal. Like The Fool on the Hill is a weird song, but it does not sound. It's very we're, we're, we're going off off the album here but paul's just got a really good way at changing things up and making it interesting and you're right the bass just drives and drives and drives and i've said before at the beginning of this episode paul invented lead bass at least as far as i'm concerned on this album what what a what a ba- what a great bass line yeah one of my favorite well on that riff too is like uh you know one of the things that's really unique about this song too is that uh you dad you brought up uh uh in the the weird ending of the song. But if you listen to the jam at the end of the song, it literally almost sounds like it's a drum loop. Yes. With like this cool piano mm-hmm. on top. Um, I saw some documentary where Questlove um, from the Roots was talking about like, this is one of the best breaks ever, but it's just so expensive to sample the Beatles. But he's absolutely right. Like it sounds like it could have been a great hip hop break. And I want to find out if it's ever been used, but it's, it's really kind of, I'm sure that it inspired some people that were looking for some new sound. It had to. I'm sure. It's so different. And my thought on, on all the, the huffing and puffing at the end was they did all the, they did all the heavy work when they were sober. 
They probably dropped acid and then came in and were like, let's do some breathing on the end. Because I don't, I don't see how you can be out of your mind and do that kind of technical stuff. Maybe, maybe I'm just not good at being out of my mind. I don't know. <laughs> I think also one, of the, one last thing on this song is I love the lyrics. I just love it. Standing by a parking Nita when I caught a glimpse of Rita with that yes. British accent. Yes. Just perfect. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you gave me a it's new appreciation a for this song, Tony. I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm moving this up the list on on my Beatles list. Okay, it's going up the list. <laughs> All, All right. right. Okay, so track eleven is "Good Morning, Good Morning," another stellar Lennon gem. Very sarcastic. I love the lyrics. And my technical note: I did hear that they put the microphones down inside the trumpets and stuff to get that weird brassy sound. It's a good song. It, the ending is the best part of it, and it I just I just love Lennon's snarky wit. Nobody could write biting lyrics like him and it's not it's not overtly biting but if you get into what he's talking about he's talking about watching the skirts and starting to flirt after he's bored with his wife it's kind of a shitty thing to say actually well i, I would say that the, the horns to me they've always sounded like it was a marching like in the, yes. in the background it's always, yes i love the way they sound um you know i like the way that they they fit in there and i always thought that was kind of a cool thing to do and Is i don't know in like some weird time signature too yeah it's in five four yeah it's strange. You know, I, I remember reading something George Martin said he was he was pretty Im- impressed that John Lennon, not being a trained musician or anything, came up with a song in 5-4. <laughs> yeah, I, I do 4-4. Four, four. I don't mess with anything <clears throat> too weird. Oh, now that but, sounds like know, a challenge, J-Mac. I'm writing a song in 5-4. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, there's some there's some famous songs. And there's a, I don't know if you, if this is, this is probably just a really side note. You could cut this out if you want to, but. The song "Money" on um, yes, Pink Floyd. Pink, Pink Floyd. That's seven four. That song is in seven. I four. knew that was then weird. It, then it switches to four and four. For the middle part, it switches to four four. That's but then just, it goes back to seven four. That's just somebody trying to show how smart they are. Bum, but, bum, ba-dum, bum, it gets bum, in your bum, head. Bum, bum. I've seen bands play that live, and I'm like, I would have to have a counter in front of me. <laughs> yeah. Once again, Lennon finds a way to kind of turn something a little twisted. And then all all props to to Ringo. I'm sure Ringo probably had never played five four before. He figured out something to do. And it yeah, was good. Yeah, I remember. I remember hearing Ringo said him and George learned to play chess on this album because they didn't have a lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, you know, some of the sarcasm for John Lennon came into the editing of the song too. At the end of it, it starts off. I don't have the order of what the animals show up. I think it starts off with like a horse or. A, or no, it starts off with a bird uh, or something. It's a bird or a chicken. Chicken? Yeah, whatever actually the progression is, I should look it up here, but it, it doesn't matter. Check it out and listen to it. But the point is, is that every animal that succeeds the other one is further up the uh, the food chain. Yes. Oh. So like they're eating each other. But at the very end, there's like a chicken that, that gawks, like that the, mm-hmm. makes their chicken sound. And it splices together perfectly with the guitar that begins the next song. And what I heard is that that was totally an accident. Just it sounds perfectly like they planned it, but it was one of those happy accidents that happened in the in the song because those this this song and then you know, and, and we'll get to Sergeant Pepper uh, reprise, but that one they blend together seamlessly, like they flow into each other, mm-hmm. kind of like the first three songs on the record as well. Well, well, and Tony, you, I'm going to defer to you on this. You know more about music. This was the first time anything this bizarre had ever been done at the end of an album. Or, I mean, it wasn't the exact end, but the birds and the cows and the horses and the lions. 
I can't think of anything that had happened up till 1967 like that. Now, of course, everybody's emulated something like this after, but even even so, I don't. I can't think of a modern band who's pulled off something so strange. Like you write it down on paper, and you're like, "No, we can't do this. No, this won't sell. It'll sound horrible." But somehow, Lennon he heard it and he made it work. I, you know, the only person who I would think might have done something like that would be Frank Zappa. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. You guys want to talk about the reprise? Let's do it. But it's great. It is weird how that rooster crows are right when the right when the drum. Yeah, and it's it's great. I was I was wondering when I was listening to that a couple weeks ago when we were getting ready to do this. I was like, did they do that on purpose? Because it almost sounds like guitar feedback. It does. Uh, you know who who knows the actual story? But you know the way that 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 things happen on this record. Now they were experimenting so many things. I would not be surprised. It was a happy accident. I mean, you know, the the way that they splice things together on other songs, like when they, you know, did tape loops and, and, and weird sounds. So I just think it was one of those, like, perfect happy accidents. And, you know, the, we were talking about bands sampling the Beatles. The Beastie Boys sampled this opening drum beat. But you got to tell you, it's simple, but Ringo nails it. He does. And I know people talk a lot about Ringo's drumming not being all that dynamic. This is a case in point. It doesn't have to be complicated to be catchy. That's true. And this version of Sgt. Pepper was always the one for me uh, when I first started as a kid. I would like, oh, I don't want to listen to the first one as much as like the real heavy. I'm like, the Beatles are rocking on this song. (laughs) Well, like we said before, you know, and Ringo says this, he's all about the song. He doesn't play the drums like to show off or to stand out. He plays the song, the drums to support the song. And he really does when you stop and think about it. But Sam, you're right. This is this is as heavy as the Beatles got on this album. And I I I did like it more than the first one. Although as I've gotten older, I appreciate the harmonies more on the first one, the the Sgt. Pepper proper. But they really kick they really kick out the jams on the on the reprise. I love I love McCartney's delivery and love the screechy uh guitars and the thumping bass. It's it's a great end to the album, except there's more. Right. It sounds like it's the end. They even tell you it's the end, but it's not the right. end. And I but would say it is the ultimate McCartney Lennon song, Lennon McCartney song. This well, so it's to me, it's genius how they decided not to end the album with that, but then to add Day in the Life after that. Philosophically, that says something. I'm not sure what, but it's my favorite track on the record. Lennon's vocals. He's never sounded more haunting, more emotional, more pitch perfect. Just surreal how good his voice with his vocals are on this album and that's what i loved about lennon is, is he, he could and, and mccartney could too is they could just they knew how to change their voice a little bit to match each song so yes. they didn't sing every song the same way like they, they would they would change their voice in you know like like you know compare john lennon on twist and shout to day in the life yeah. or on help to a to a day in the life they're just they're just different or to you know come together he just knew how to change his voice to fit the song and, and of course mccartney did it too like you listen to let it be or hey jude and compare that with get back you know, with oh darling or or um you know back in the ussr yeah. yeah they were a master of their instruments and sam you are more of the producer so i'm gonna let you talk a little bit about what you hear in the arrangement and just the sheer weight of what we're listening to in this track well, yeah, um, that's a really good point, J-Mac, because a lot of my notes on this song are from a production standpoint. And, you know, um, we'll kind of talk about it a little bit, you know, 
one of the things that really stands out to me right off the bat is how when the middle section comes in, woke up, fell out of bed, um, there's something really interesting happening with the vocal there, you know, for, for the listeners out there that are, that are thinking or, or that, that are producers and, and looking for sounds, the way that they compressed his vocal on that part, just make it sound so drastically different from the way that John's vocals yes, sound. Yes, yes. Um, because John's vocals just have like this, this crazy like echo that happens in there. And I know that they were using those echo chambers in the basement of Abbey Road for this song hardcore. Like they have these different ones down there. They have like stone walls or like wood walls. And they were using these things to like send the sound in and record it back. But there's such a stark contrast where it goes from this crazy echoey vocal, crazy string sounds like all out of tune. And then boom, it cuts and it's just like a piano. Dun, 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 dun. It's absolutely where I think, I can't prove it. Maybe someday we can ask him for ourselves. I think that might be where Jeff Lynn got the idea for uh, Mr. Blue Sky. It was from how the piano sounds in the middle. Mm-hmm. Of- I can see that. I could see right? that. What it sounds to me is it sounds like McCartney singing in a small cardboard box. It's so dry and so close. It's the exact opposite of Lennon's cathedral sounding vocal. And this and, and what about when it when it talks about like he, you know, so I went upstairs and had a smoke and somebody spoke and I went into a dream and right on that then his vocal explodes yes. into like this crazy cacophony of sounds which perfectly brings it right back into I read the news today, oh boy. Genius. Genius production. I don't think if you spent a year or two in the studio trying to replicate what they did, it wouldn't be the same. I don't think they understood what they were doing when they were making this. There's no way they could have realized how great this song was when they were doing it. Well, I I, I think that they might have. You know, one of my favorite stories about the the production of this record, too, is when they did the the string section, uh, when they did the, the session for the strings. Um, they actually had a special night where they uh, they they brought in these string players. I think from the I think from the London Philharmonic, um, but it could be the, the London Symphony Orchestra. I'm not sure. Any in any case, these were like you know amazing classical string players from an orchestra in London. They came in and they had a fancy dress party. Everybody wore their tuxedo. They had the studio all decorated in lights, and it was all psychedelic. And uh, all the Beatles were wearing like these crazy psychedelic outfits with like, you know, crazy bright colors and weird uh, sunglasses, you know, anything to stand out. A lot of their friends were there. I'm pretty sure Mick Jagger was there for the recording of this. Yes, he was. And then what they did is they handed out um, these masks, like funny face masks to all the string players and and asked them to play these stupid looking like creepy masks while they played. You can tell that they're uncomfortable because this whole (laughs) thing is filmed. Like if you go on YouTube and look up a a day in the life, you you, you can actually watch, watch the footage of them recording the orchestra for the song. And everybody is just like, you know, some of them are like into it. They're wearing the mask with like some long nose and some crazy eyes. But you can tell some of them are like, I'm not wearing a mask. (laughs) You kidding me? (laughs) <laughs> well, i just think it's it says something about the whimsicality of what they were doing at the time i think they at least wanted to have a good time doing it you know but they might have been onto something they might have known that they were doing something i don't know well tony let, let me let me pass to you here and you want to talk about the difference between the lennon and the mccartney vert sides of this song and how they they work so well together 
Well, what I the way I take it is is that um, you know Lennon's Lennon's part of the song is is this all dreamy you know philosophical stuff, and then you know bang, McCartney's like it brings everything back. Well, this is daily. This is the daily life. You get up, you get out of bed, you go to work, you come home, you eat your dinner, you go to sleep, you get up, and you do it all over again. And it, that's contrast with against Lennon, who's actually looking at the bigger picture. In the whole thing, you know, how many now they know how many holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought of it that way. You make you make it perfect sense. McCartney's talking about the daily grind, getting up, going to work, doing all those things. Lennon's off on a cloud somewhere. And I never really I thought of it more in the sense of flavor. But you're actually nailing the the heart of the matter here is that Lennon's head was somewhere else. And McCartney's was in a completely different place. You brought them together and you made a masterpiece. Neither song would have been a flop without the other half, but right. compa- but put it's them just, to get put them together. It's dynamite. It's contrast. It's yes. all about the contrast. I, I've never. Well, heard, hey, you know, all John Lennon is saying is, "I want to turn you on." I mean, right. it's so subversive. Now, now, look, I don't know that they knew that they were making the soundtrack for the Summer of Love when they made this record because I think this came out in may like late may um maybe early june um i don't i don't know that they knew that but i think that they knew they were onto something right well they ended up being the thing that like you know that coincided with like timothy leary talking about you know um what do you say uh tune in turn on drop out out. yeah (laughs) but i I don't know that they knew that that was going to happen but the thing is is um you know this album they already had a little thing about drugs going on when people misunderstood the the um, the lyrics, you know, to I get high. I want to hold your hand. Oh yeah, I want to hold your hand. But people thought they were saying, "I get high, I get high," and what <laughs> they were really oh, what they God. were saying. Um, what I forgot. What is what was the actual? I can't. Lyric? I can't hide. I can't hide. Yeah. So that's what got my mom off on the on the drugs thing. But then this song, you know. First, it starts out. I get by with a little help from my friends. I get high with a little help from my friends. That really right. set the drug people off. And then John Lennon saying, "I'd love to turn you on." That right. just took it over the top. Well, I think I think he was definitely being subversive by saying that. Like, well, John by that time, yeah, I'm sure, like, I'm sure yeah. he was. He said, "You want you want to think we're dreaming about drugs? Well, how about loosing the sky with diamonds?" And I'd love to turn you on. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so any closing thoughts? I know, Sam, you said you had some notes that you wanted to get to before we're ending. This is going to be our longest episode ever, but it's I, I yeah. it's it's good. I love it. I feel like we got to give a bonus episode once in a while. You know what I'm saying? That's right. And and this is a good one for that, you know. And, uh, you know, there's just a couple things I wanted to point out about this record. If you're not sold on it yet, right, here's a couple things to know about why the Beatles are awesome. Uh, with this album okay so there's a couple things that happened the first time with this this is this is the first Beatles record by the way to be released simultaneously on the same day all around the world up until this point there was different versions they would uh, for the American versions of the albums that Capitol would release they would kind of cut up records and assemble them together into other albums and and there wasn't like you know some albums would have songs missing this was the first time that a Beatles album was the same all around the world and came out at the same time. Now there was mono and stereo versions, but that was a really significant thing for them. And I think that that only happened because 
they focused on the album, they stopped touring and they wanted to take the album on the road. Right. So I thought that was really, that that was a really interesting thing to bring up. Um, But it's also, I think this is the first record to ever have lyrics printed on yes. the back. You're right. I've read that before. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually, it kind of backfired on them a little bit because this is also the record that ended up really igniting. And I want to do an episode specifically about this, J-Mac. It really ignited and set off the conspiracy theory that Paul was dead. Yeah. Th- there's a couple clues on the record that point to that. And, and, and one of those is specifically uh, on the back cover, there's a picture. It's mostly a red background and you can go look at it, you know, go to your local record store when you can, or look online and look at the back of it. There's a, it's all red, but in the very bottom, it has the Beatles. And there's this one little spot where George Martin is pointing and the lyrics, George Harrison, to, George Harrison, the, the lyrics he's pointing to is on She's Leaving Home, and it's Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock. So this is a little teaser for when we talk about Paul is dead, but they said, oh, oh they're saying that Paul died on Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock. It's there on the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only that, not only that, Paul is the only one standing to his, with his back yeah. to the camera in that picture. Right. See, and also have, another have thing. you come on for the Paul is dead uh, on, on his sleeve, on the shirt, the coat that he's wearing on the front cover, it says OPD. Which you know, people say, "Well, that's Ontario Police Department," but other people say, "No, that's officially pronounced dead." I love it. I love it. There's so that's a whole weird thing. We got to go deep on that. It's oh a, yeah. And also, he he blew his mind out in a car. Yeah. He didn't notice that the lights has changed. That was about Paul. <laughs> people said too. So the thing I want to you know really point out about Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band that's really significant for the Beatles. Not only is it you know some people would say their greatest record. Um, it definitely changed the face of music um, and it still has influence now. But I th- think the thing that's really interesting and amazing about listening to this record is knowing that this is the Beatles at their, their best in the sense of them getting along. They had an amazing fun time in the studio. They were trying things. It was new. It was fresh. They could take longer to make these sounds. And, you know, basically, according, you know, according to people like Jeff Emmerich, who was their engineer, he's like, this is when they were, they were a unit They They hadn't got to the point where everyone had their individual personalities. They were trying to find out they were all together making this happen. Um, I just think that that's really special. So when you listen to it, listen to it that way, knowing that these guys are just having the time of their lives, making some crazy music. It's out there. For two tape decks and a mixing board, I'm Jay Mack. And I'm Sam Wade. Saying until next time, stay cosmic. cosmic. Dad, do you want to say it? Stay cosmic. All right.